Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. We step back into the ring, back into time, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller hanging out in the Great Smoky Mountains. What's going on, my man, Ron? Oh man, it's a it's a little bit nicer today. Been through a real nice stretch of weather. A little warmth came through, and uh, some nice days. Uh, dropped off a little bit last night, uh, but uh, it's going to go back up again. It's just up and down this time of year. The leaves are all gone. It's a little bit uh, not as beautiful as it has been since <laughs> I got here last April, but. Uh, Still, it's a it's a beautiful spot. So nothing you, to complain about, man. So I think a couple of weeks uh, last week, maybe it was you you established that you do not own a rake, and you are not planning on buying a rake down at Ace Hardware to clean the leaves out of the yard. That's correct. Okay, so. now, I'm going to let them just uh, go on and uh, and just disintegrate yeah. Uh, yeah. naturally, I guess. Okay, so will you just watch the leaves disintegrate? Well, they're all gone basically now, you know, even, yeah. uh, even the ones that have fallen, uh, right. we started to lose our leaves here probably, uh, two weeks ago, yeah. uh, three weeks ago, maybe in some places. So, uh, especially in the higher elevation yeah. and gone up there for a while, yeah. you see up top of the mountains and, uh, that was gone probably three weeks ago. Well, we understand that you're not fond of outdoor chores, and by now you probably, well, maybe by spring you'll have you'll have a lawn crew or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I hope so, man. Okay. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> All right, stud. All right, let's get this thing going. Hey, by the way, you have been building toward the first ever Knoxville Coliseum Thanksgiving Night event. I think in the conversations that you and I have had that. You, you're just as excited about this particular night and the card as the fans were on that night, Thanksgiving in 1977. It was a pretty big deal. Before we get to that, though, we're both really excited about what's happening on your YouTube Southeastern Rewind channel as well. Tell us what's going on. Well, we sure are, man. Uh, wow. It's just been crazy. Uh, the channel is, is uh, that's only been around for about six months. And, uh, in that six months, I spent a lot of time uh, trying different things, man. I, I want to find out what fans really like and what they really want. So this past week, man, was a record breaker for first week releases. 
I think I got a little something going on in, uh, in both of the new Continental shows, number six, uh, and the USA TV show, number 17. Both of those broke first day viewer records uh, for the first time. Uh, and number six has just been tremendous. Wow. That, that mm -hmm. program is going to be a big one for fans. Uh, it's a great one. Uh, it has me, me and uh, Bob Armstrong and the Texas death match in the very opening of the show. So, uh, you know, it's a, and it's from back in the good old days when, Gosh, I watch it, and by God, I look pretty good back in those days. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, as compared to the way uh, no. I look now, it's like, wow, well, man, well, I, I didn't look too bad. You it's know? been so, a couple uh, of years, Ron. Come on. Yeah, well, it's been a few years. Yeah, I yeah, guess it's okay. been a few years, and I guess it yeah. should change a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, so anyway, I'm real happy about those two shows, and uh, every week now we're we're hitting them with the. Two shows, two new, two, two new show, do, pardon me, two new shows, uh, number 17 uh, and number six, Continental Six uh, and number 17 are up there now. And uh, we're going to be coming with some more every week. You're going to get a new one of USA and a new one of Continental. And I've just started doing, man, these uh, two stud stories a week now. And it seems like a lot of people out there uh, kind of consider me a great storyteller, man. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm not sure exactly why, but, uh, you know, they they, they, want, they like to hear the stories. So uh, both stud stories this week were really well liked, and uh, they set records. And uh, number five, the number five uh, stud story about Andre the Giant and the Waffle House breakfast, man. Has just been the gangbuster, man. So, I know. told you. Listen, from the time you told that story on one of the original Studcast, and I'm pretty sure it's also in one of the the first ever Super Studcast was about Andre the Giant. But I told you that is a gem when you're talking about the largest man we've ever seen or known or been nearby, uh, a close up to. When he sits down at Waffle House, what is that like? And then the way you answer that and the way you come off with the story of you and Andre visiting Waffle House is, it, it again, it's a gem, dude. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, gosh, I was really, uh, I was I was blessed to get to spend time <laughs> with a guy like Andre. Yeah. And to, and to see that, be able to witness that kind of uh, intake into a human body is, <laughs> oh, uh, the know, humanity. pretty remarkable, <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, uh, that, that one was really popular, as I said, now in stud, stud, uh, stories, number six, man, uh, it's, uh, it's about, uh, another one of those 11 champions, uh, world NWA world champions that I was able to wrestle in my career, blessed again to wrestle some of the greatest. And, uh, this one's about Dory Funk Jr. And uh, in my opinion, he's one of the greatest of all of them, man. Uh, his style of wrestling was just really, really unusual. And uh, the next stud story, number seven, is going to come on Saturday, December 11th. And this one is going to be about two subjects in one. Uh, and it's going to be about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which was today when we're recording this show today. Yeah, yes. Uh, that's yep. actually uh, 80 years ago to the day. Yep. Uh, next Saturday, I'm going to tell a story about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and it's going to come from a wrestler that trained me and my brother 
and my father and my uncles and my cousins and uh, wow and uh, <laughs> and so many other wrestlers, Ron Wright and so many wrestlers around the country and around the world. A guy named Charlie Carr, hmm. who uh, happened to be in Pearl Harbor on a ship the day it was bombed. That's incredible that's story. So, he told me yeah. a pretty amazing story, Dave. Yeah. And yeah, you said 80 years ago today, 80 years ago, literally within a couple of hours of time, because it was like seven thirty-five or seven forty-five in the morning when it happened over in Hawaii. So that's, that's an awesome one. That's going to be a good story. And we can't wait to hear what that's about. And this guy, you said this guy could see, he could actually see the, the, the Japanese, uh, fighter pilots, uh, pilots in the plane, and he recognized, oh, those are actually Japanese folks. Uh, yeah. So he could actually yeah. see that it was not a, it was not a trial run or a test or anything. Yeah, so, they were doing some yeah. trial runs. He said, uh, huh. you know, he'd been in port there uh, in Pearl Harbor for uh, about uh, two weeks, and he said they had run some trial runs uh, where they had painted zeros on the planes to yeah. make them look like Japanese planes. Yeah, and the American pilots were flying those planes just to get uh, to get people ready in case something like that were to ever happen. And yeah. Uh, and oddly enough, he said he was there watching it uh, when the first real Japanese plane came down. Him yeah. and his friend were standing on the deck of uh -huh. their ship. And he said uh, they had the zero on the back of the tail. And he said, you know, he looked at his buddy and he go, well, they're doing one of those runs again. And then he said he got to looking and he said he, he could see the pilot was close enough. He could see he was a Japanese. That's incredible. And he said to his yeah. friend, he goes, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and he said yeah. that that first plane uh, dropped the bomb that hit the Arizona, which was way wow. at the far end of the of the harbor. And it was, so, he was. so close that he could see the pilot's face. And he, he knew. could see that it was yeah. a Japanese pilot. That is incredible. That close to him. Yeah, yeah, we can't wait to hear Charlie's story. And that, oh listen, yeah, man! That uh, you is, know Charlie uh, Carr, what a yeah. uh, great character too. Uh, uh, his lifetime is a remarkable story in itself. So yeah, yeah. I'm loving these stud stories, man. And uh, and obviously, I think fans are loving them as well. And if you, you're out there and you you haven't gone to Southeastern Rewind, and you're not subscribed yet, or you hadn't listened to one of these, uh, I think uh, people are going to really enjoy these uh, because uh, they're not too long. Uh, somewhere yeah. between uh, not eight, ten minutes, uh, and up to sometimes as much as twenty-five, depending on the subject. Yeah, but uh, but uh, I'm enjoying it. I mean, it is just kind of a lot of fun for me, and uh, and I, like I say, I kind of think I'm getting a feel for what people want to want to hear and what they what they want to uh, want to see. Yeah. So, uh, well, wrestling today is not like wrestling of yesterday and what we now call old school wrestling. And I think that's why people are gravitating more and more. Plus, I mean, these stories are incredible. They're historical, some hysterical. So I really can't wait for next Saturday. And that one that you're, uh, you're going to be introducing one about Ron Wright. Tell us a little bit about this. It has to do with an airplane also. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, man, uh, well, uh, you know, fans that know Ron Wright, believe it or not, he had an airplane. He owned an airplane, and he actually flew it himself. You know, that to me was astounding. And uh, and uh, you know, I tell some Ron Wright stories uh, 
uh, in some of my super stud cast. Uh, one of them is about uh, Ron Wright. In fact, uh, number two super stud cast is all about Ron Wright. And uh, I'm going to tell the story about uh, the, one of the first flights I took with him. And uh, he's going to fly me from Knoxville to Memphis, he and his brother. And uh, then he decides that he wants to stop off at my father's ranch on the way over there and <laughs> land on his little tiny runway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, wow. And anybody that knows Ron Wright, uh, you know, can imagine what that was all about. But wow. Uh, you know, uh, another great story. And um, I think fans are going to really like it. And uh, that one should be coming up in the next week or so as well. Yeah. All right. And for those listeners that really enjoy uh, enjoyed Andre the Giant, especially on Super Studcast number one and all the other occasions. And they're soon going to hear Ron Wright stories that you may not be aware. You can get the three-hour Super Studcast on Andre the Giant, the first ever, and Ron Wright with lots more stories about both of those. And they're on Ron's website at tnstud.com. We talk about the stud store a lot. Listen, click on Super Studcast or Studcast, and that's where you'll find it. In this case, click on Super Studcast. Only $2.99 for three hours of both hilarious and historic stories. And I guess we should cover the latest thing on your Southeastern Rewind Channel 2, Stud. Tell us about that. Well, I'm very happy to announce for fans all over the world that uh, they can now get the weekly stud cast, man, uh, right on Southeastern Rewind, uh, you know, and uh, uh, fans have been getting it for years on tnstud.com on the website and then they're all podcast outlets. It's out there and available on 30 or more different platforms. Yeah. But now it's also available right on Southeastern Rewind and, uh, we want to make sure, man, uh, Dave, that we get uh, we make this available to everybody that wants it all around the world. And uh, there are people all over the world listening to our broadcast. And uh, this uh, just want to let them know that if, in case you're not aware of it, that you can go right to Southeastern Rewind on YouTube and you can get every one of these now. Uh, we've been doing this, I guess, for the last six or eight of them, I guess, uh, something like that. Mm -hmm. They've been on this on the uh, Southeastern Rewind site. And uh, and uh, so fans, uh, you know, I encourage you, uh, if you were looking for another location or you can't find it on yours or something happens, you can always find it on uh, tnstud.com. And now you can always find it on Southeastern Rewind. Yeah. All right. And speaking of making Studcasts popular, which they are, let's find out where we're going to be writing in this one. So what's up today, Stud? Well, we're going to begin with today's training. And uh, this one, man, is the perfect subject for this Thanksgiving 1977 Coliseum event that's going to be the focus today. We're going to learn how and why did these holiday events affect so dramatically the business of wrestling companies and the fans that supported them? I mean, uh, they were really, really, it was a huge concept to start doing this on Thanksgivings and Christmas, stuff like that. And uh, so uh, then we're going to jump into the fantastic card of Thanksgiving night, 1977 in the Knoxville Coliseum. First time ever in the Knoxville Coliseum, as a matter of fact for a Thanksgiving event. And we're gonna discuss the rating period, uh, TV, 
that promoted it. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of that rating period in November 1977. We'll talk about the results of the matches. Uh, we'll talk about the attendance on this big card. And, uh, you know, then we're going to be uh, – you, you got it, I believe, Dave. Tell me what the learning tree question is for today. Actually, Mr. Larry Bradshaw asked, why was there such a long absence of matches between the last one with the Mongolian Stomper against Joe LaDuke? Okay, and I think what he's saying here basically is uh, there's about four months period of time that Joe LaDuke did not wrestle the Mongolian Stomper a single time. What was up and with it that? It was after the blockbusting incident, after he had spent time in the hospital. Oh. And uh, so that's a great question. Uh, I look forward to answering that one. You know, and uh, why and why I was holding off uh, on, on doing that again. So, uh, uh, you know, great learning two questions. So let's ride in, man. Let's let's get to going, man. Let's, uh, we're saddled up. Uh, you you got Mr. Pickles. I guess he's still uh, he's still around, right? Oh, he's in good shape. He's ready to roll. All right. So let's uh, jump into that today's training. Uh, and listeners are going to learn how and why these holiday events so dramatically affected the businesses of wrestling companies and the fans that supported those wrestling companies. So let's start with how holiday events affected the fans. Okay. And it was so obvious, man. If, if, and I had to, I always tried to sneak down there on some of these big nights and, uh, and kind of hide in the, in the offices uh, there in the Coliseum where I could see the people that were buying tickets in the lobby. And uh, it was so exciting, man. And it was obvious, man, uh, on these big holiday events, uh, as soon as they started arriving at the building, uh, because most families had been together most of the day in the early afternoon, they had had their dinner. They know they're coming to this event and uh, they had celebrated that, that uh, big Thanksgiving dinner with each other, and they visited uh, after the dinner. Uh, some of them might even gone home, and then they met up later, uh, or they just rested until just about dark. And by the time they arrived, man, and uh, when they arrived, they were in much larger groups than normal. You know, it's families. It's a family affair, basically. And the lobby and the ticket sale area was just mobbed with people. Wow, they, they just came by the thousands, literally, you know. And the, and the excitement of what was to come for them that night, you could just see it in their faces. They were just so happy to be there and so looking forward to these big, big holiday events. So the sheer size of these crowds on holidays was just truly, like I said, immense. I mean, the lobbies were just, and, and thousands of people will be stacked outside on the on the uh, patio on the backside of the Coliseum, and uh, the big steps in the front of the Coliseum. Yeah, it was just, uh, it was, it was a, it was a fantastic scene, and and I had years, I'd been dreaming for years of this type of holiday event, and uh, just uh, having seeing the diversity of a big crowd like that. And, you know, I've now been in the Coliseum long enough and often enough that the Chilhowee Park a crowd that hated it when I first went to the Coliseum, they'd been coming, you know, about three years at this point. And uh, by golly, now the Coliseum was home for them. You know, they felt real comfortable there. And I could tell that you know, the way they arrived and the way they acted. And the other fan base that I dreamed of getting there, those that would never go to Chilhowee Park, you know, was coming in droves to the Coliseum. 
they were happy when we started coming to the Coliseum and they were just, you know, they, they were really supportive of it. So everybody at this point, park fans or not, they felt at home now. And you could tell it when you saw those people in the lobby out there that this was a real uh, exciting event for them. And they got and we had programs uh, for the first time that ever on Thanksgiving. And the program cover was absolutely great. It had a turkey. It had a turkey's body. And in the place of his of the turkey's head was guess who? Ron Wright. <laughs> All right. Ron Wright's head was on the turkey. <laughs> and that was the cover of the program. What a beautiful program it was. And I think we sold that day, Dave, probably as many as 5,000 programs. Wow. You know, just uh, wow! It was just, it was just a grand affair, man. Uh, so, you know, and uh, everybody felt at home, man. And uh, and it was a clear and obvious, without a doubt, man, uh, how excited everybody was. And it all happened with that first bell. Wow! And on these holiday nights, the entire crowd would rise to their feet, man, and roar, man, with its approval. You know, it was a special thing, and you could tell it. I like the the, the to have my timekeeper who rang the bell for the events and things on some of these events, and he knew that I really was was into these Thanksgiving shows. And this first one, uh, I sent for him. And I didn't come to the dressing room and I told him, uh, you come back and notify me before you ring the bell. Hmm. And he came back and did that. And then I went that night, uh, uh, walked to the back of the building to that big old huge black curtain that went all the way across the back of the Coliseum. Mm -hmm. And I stood back there sight unseen. And um, man, I was just honored to be there for that bell. Uh, honored to hear the explosion of glee, man, from those thousands of fans. I got the goosebumps, man, on my body, as I used to do sometimes when I was wrestling, and the fans really got into it. They got me into it, and uh, and I had I was always it was it was wonderful to have my first look at that beautiful sold out arena, and it was <laughs> packed with all those celebrating fans. I got to thinking, man, uh, that night, you know the of uh, how I had something to do with that moment. Uh, and uh, boy, that was always so satisfying me uh, as being an owner of a wrestling company to think I got something to do with what's happening out there with all those people being there with all that happiness that's going on. Out there. <laughs> hey, I, t I mean, but look, it, to me, it seems kind of obvious from, from my, my vantage point, because Watching the the wrestle the TV show together, it was a family affair. And then, of course, Thanksgiving is the biggest family day of the year. They've sat there and they've eaten together and enjoyed time and visited with friends and family they haven't seen in a while. And so now in the evening, they're headed out for an incredible performance. This just happens to be wrestling. So I, I think that says a lot. It's a great description of what the fans were feeling, Ron. So, I mean... You, you had to, they had to be feeling that too, a, a, a sense of satisfaction after a, a long day. So that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. But what about the business itself? How was it affected? Well, anytime you filled your building, I mean, it, it seemed the building to me seemed like it was begging for you to do it again and again. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, that full building just yeah. almost talked to me and it said, can you do it again? Can you get it bigger? You know? 
And, uh, you know, setting records uh, really is supposed to only happen once. But, you know, when you think about it, that once is is the one until the next time comes and you break it, you know. So uh, that it was it was like these records were meant to be broken. So uh, it was up to the wrestlers, though, at this point, just how much business was going to be improved by that night's matches, man. Uh, yeah, that was that important. All right. And on the topic of wrestlers, wrestlers, how much did they have to do with everything? Well, when you think about it, Dave, they're the reason everybody came. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't me, and, uh, you know, it wasn't because it was Thanksgiving. Uh, it was because of what they did on TV and what they did in all these towns around there and, and uh, you know, how important they they grew to be to the communities, man, in all these cities. And uh, so if you had a great crew on a night like this one, man, you didn't have to sit them down and get them motivated. It wasn't like a coach, you know, sitting <laughs> and going to his players before the game and said, by golly, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. It yeah. was unnecessary, man. And I could tell it. When they started arriving, when the boys started coming in the dressing room, I could just tell by the by their attitude, by the way they were acting. You could see it in their faces. They were like those fans in the lobby out there. They were lit up like a Christmas tree. They were like, wow, man, oh, this is going to be so much fun. And they, I knew that every one of them was going to go out there and they were going to give everything they had for those fans to make them go absolutely crazy. So, you know, wrestlers may have been independent contractors, they, and they were. You were paid as an independent contractor if you was a wrestler, and, uh, you know, you, most of them didn't get the 1099 to, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, they worked for themselves. Mm -hmm. But on these big nights, these holiday nights, they were all like one team, man. You know, they all wanted this to be huge, to be successful. You know, and in fact, Dave, you know, when I stood behind that curtain, man, and I looked out there and I got those goosebumps, I think <laughs> on that night, when I think back, I wasn't the only one standing back there, man, that had those goosebumps. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And was, was this like a bonus night for the wrestlers? Uh, was it a night that they might would have been home? So did they make extra money by performing on this particular night? Oh, wow, Dave. They made so much money. I mean, these crowds were so massive and they were so big that uh, they would make sometimes uh, three times as much as what they would make uh, uh, on a normal night. You know, and uh, and it got to be big, uh, really, really. We got to be huge. Starting in 85, we started having wrestling uh, twice a day on Thanksgiving. We wrestled in the afternoons mm -hmm. and sold out Knoxville's Coliseum. Yeah. And then we beat it down to Birmingham, 250 miles south, and wrestled at night for people in Birmingham to another sold-out crowd. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, so guys made as much on Thanksgiving sometimes as they would make in an entire week in one day. Well, and that probably has a little bit to do how they showed up uh, kind of kind of happy. Uh, and they're, yeah. they're, they're glad to be there because this is this is a bonus night. Christmas is coming and you're talking about 1977. I, I don't know how much you paid them. If you paid them two hundred dollars, that's a pretty good night for uh, a, a wrestler in the opening match or two. So anyway, that that's an awesome way to open a stud cast stud. So what was the card for the first ever 
Coliseum Thanksgiving Spectacular in Southeastern history, 1977. Well, this is crazy, but uh, this one opened with a very different first match. It ended up being, and it was not scheduled until television, uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the day, the, uh, you know, uh, had been days earlier, you know, uh, that uh, that this match was even added to the card. And it was a hair versus hair match between my brother, Robert Fuller, and a guy he had a rivalry with uh, lately uh, that was trained by Ron Wright, you know. And, uh, and we're going to get to the reason why that uh, this match got uh, shoved into this position, being the opening match on Thanksgiving night. And Rob's going to wrestle twice that night. He's going to wrestle and put up his hair in the first match, and he's going to go back and wrestle again in the tag team championship match. Second match on the night was for the kids, man, basically. And uh, the reason for that was is because the kids came by the thousands, and with those kids came their parents and the other members of their family. And so we did things on these holiday events that we didn't do on normal cards. And uh, this was one of them. The second match was a mixed tag team match. It had Roy Lee Welch, and Roy Lee had a midget lady partner named Princess Little Dove. And they wrestled against the pro, Doug Gilbert, <laughs> and uh, Diamond Lil was his partner. Mm -hmm. So next was... Uh, the next match on this card was a main event anywhere in the world. I don't care where it was. This would have been a main event. And uh, Tony Charles wrestled his friend from Ireland, Pat Barrett, Thanksgiving night. Uh, uh, and we'll talk about that match a little later and why I thought it was important. Uh, then there was a World's Ladies Championship match, one of the first we'd had there ever. And uh, since I'd been there with Southeastern, uh, the ladies world champion was the fabulous Mula. And she was defending her title against Joyce Grable. We can talk about this lady and in her matches. Wow. A fifth match was for the Southeastern Tag Championship. Don Carson and the Assassin, who were now managed by Ron Wright, were defending their belts against Ricky Gibson and my brother Robert. A uh, special event was next, a no disqualification match. And in this match, the pin could take place anywhere in the building. Didn't have to happen in the ring. Uh, and it wasn't likely it was going to happen in the ring, to be yeah. honest with you. <laughs> so Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, uh, took off, took on his former partner, Bob Orton Jr. in this one. Uh, uh, what a match. The main event uh, featured two men who had been in one of the greatest angles ever done, but not in the ring together in almost four months before this card. And Joe LaDuke was returning after a ban. He was banned from last week's TV show entirely. And he returns on this card to meet the man who almost broke his neck, man, uh, four months earlier, the Mongolian stomper mm. managed by gorgeous George Jr., all right, so that was absolutely an amazing card, Ron. I can only imagine what was on the TV six days earlier and how you set this card up through that TV show. Well, let's see uh, what actually was on that show, Dave. Okay, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's open it up, uh, in, as usual, in a close-up. He ran down the card for the day, and when the cameras backed away, there was Mr. Knoxville, uh, a shot on behind him, uh, of Mr. Knoxville and Bob Orton Jr. in a steel shot. They were fighting 
between and the, actually behind the ringside seats on the Coliseum floor. Uh, the ring wasn't even in sight. They're back in the building fighting. And uh, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, sitting with Les. He's got his mask on, obviously. Uh, but uh, that's the scene behind him. So uh, Les, you know, asked the mass rascal, obviously, who's uh, Ronnie Garvin, Mr. Knoxville, what he and Bob Orton Jr. were doing so far away from the ring. Like, what are y'all doing in, in that part of the building? And Garvin, <laughs> Garvin looks over at him, and he has a one-word answer. Here it comes. He says, "He says fighting." <laughs> what did you think it was? <laughs> you know, well, I'll be darned. Imagine yeah. that. So, yeah. so, you know, so and Les kind of got a little peeved by it, you know, because you know he expected to get along, to get much more than that out of him. So you know, he just tells the director to. We're going to roll the video, then, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, so it happened in the video. They were just beginning this fight away from the ring. And, you know, it wasn't like this is toward the end of it. They had just started the fight away from the ring. So, you know, Mr. Knoxville, he didn't have much to say, you know, because uh, the video is pretty much telling the story. And the video, you know, quickly exposed, man, the obvious hatred between these two former partners, man. I was they, you know, and, uh, and so did the, the bloody faces on them. I tell you that too. They they kind of told the story as well. So uh, let's ask which of the two, you know, had asked for these crazy rules for this next match on Thanksgiving night. You know, where they're going to be able to to uh, fight outside the ring and that the falls can count anywhere in the building. Yeah. So he asked Mr. Knoxville that question. And uh, Mr. Knoxville comes back with another pretty good answer. And he goes, uh, what difference does it make? <laughs> he goes, we hate each other. <laughs> and, and being able to fight all the bill, all over the building, it's just going to leave us a greater chance that one of us is going to get hurt bad. You know? <laughs> so, so about this time in the video, uh, you know, Mr. Knoxville, who grabs Bob Orton Jr., you know, he finishes that sentence, and then you see him grab Bob Orton Jr., uh, and they're out there on the floor, and there's a concrete wall there, and he grabs him by the back of the head, and he runs him face first into the oh. concrete wall. Oh, God. And you can see the ringside seats behind them because they're following them with a camera. So they're on the Coliseum floor, and they're far away from the ring at this point. So Mr. Knoxville's watching the video, and he says, yeah, they can get hurt like that right there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the studio reacted with the shudder, man. This Bob Orton caught up, man. He was all bloody. inside of his face was all scratched. And, oh, wow, it looked horrible. So Mr. Knoxville, he continued as if nothing had happened. He, and he goes right on. He goes, you know, Thanksgiving night, he says, maybe one of us is going to fall off the second balcony to the concrete floor on the ringside <laughs> level. You know? He says, or worse, he goes, one of us might fall down the concrete steps all the way from the upper balcony to the, to the ringside floor level. You know, so, wow, okay. So let's, let's ask him a pretty obvious question. He goes, uh, uh, are you crazy? <laughs> he goes, are you two guys crazy? <laughs> you know, so he says, you know, I've never seen such a match as this one, you know, and uh, 
scheduled for Thanksgiving night. He goes, in my life, I've never seen anything like this. And he goes, uh, he says, I'm really surprised to him, you know, that Southeastern officials even considered it, much less signed it, you know. So Mr. Knoxville <laughs> continues on with this conversation like he's not even listening to this, you know. And, uh, and you see three referees, finally they're managing to kind of separate the two wrestlers and the video ends. So, you know, Knoxville just goes on with it. He turns the list and he says, uh, you know, he says, I'm not surprised you never, you never being in a match like this, Thatcher. He says, you never had any guts anyway. <laughs> because you never wanted to break somebody's back, did you? Crush somebody's skull. Boy, and the studio went deadly silent with that one. <laughs> like, whoa, wow, this is getting strong, you know. So, so he finished. He finished it. He goes, you know, that's what's going to take to end this. He says to Les, he goes, not just a hospital trip, Les, but maybe one of us is going to be paralyzed for life. <laughs> that's what I want. He says for Bob Orton Jr. for him to never walk again. <laughs> Yeah, the studio just gasped in horror, like, oh, my God. <laughs> so Les started to ask him another question, and Mr. Knoxville, he just got up and he left the set. You know, so one man was already in the ring for the next batch, and uh, the next guy that's going to be wrestling him was Bob Orton Jr. So Bob Orton Jr. passes Les, and, you know, Knoxville's gone to the dressing room, and Orton Jr. passes Les. And when the camera gets a shot of him, he's got this heart, large patch, man, over a whole one side of his face, man, where he not only busted his eye, but he's he just got a lot of skin, you know, torn off his face when he hit that concrete wall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fans cheered him a little bit, you know. Uh, uh, but the matches between me and Knoxville, man, between him and Knoxville was so violent that uh, – they 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 didn't seem like they fully supported either of them. They they watched these matches and it was chilling, man. They were like, "Wow, these guys are hating each other." So uh, Orton, man, he had no no mercy on his opponent, like always, and it ended up as usual. His match, backbreaker, a submission, and he dropped the guy on his head. And uh, this one is a little worse than the others. That he had to be carried out. So. First interview of the show was with these two. And Les had failed to mention the fact that the match was a no disqualification. But how in the hell do you have a match and where you can beat somebody anywhere in the building and not have it be a match at this called no disqualification? You know, they would be crazy not to have that stipulation. So that two-minute interview between those guys left the studio crowd totally silent, man. I think it may have made some of them hesitant to even come the following Thursday night and buy a ticket, you know. <laughs> uh, it was a very serious tone, man, that was set at the beginning of that TV show. Uh, next match, it lightened the day a little bit. It was a very unusual uh, for television World's Lady Championship match. Fabulous Mooley, um, Fabulous Moolah, I'm sorry, versus mm. Mae West. Wow. Mae West was a great one. She was an yeah. old-timer, man. Yeah. Tough. Both of these women are probably about the same age, and they're probably at this point late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say they had to be. When we some of us started learning about these two, 
they were considerably older, so they had to be really in their prime. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were, they were, they were made to do it, man. They were bad, bad, bad women at this point, you know. And uh, and since it was rating period, and uh, uh, and we had had a, a world title match the week before with Nelson Royal. You know, uh, gosh, this this worked out great, man. So we had this. This is the second world title match in a row on television in the month of November, man. And who gets that on their television shows anywhere in the country? And uh, and it served its purpose, man. Especially when Mula began to do her thing, man. Uh, but gosh, almighty, Lillian Ellison was her real name, and Lillian mm. was a mean woman. <laughs> I mean, and not just in the ring, uh, but everywhere she went, I think, man. And, uh, you know, she would make wrestlers, grown men wrestlers, standing watching the match. They would cringe, man. She would grab a woman by her hair, and she'd fly and marry them over her back and then just start flying marrying her with her hair, you know, <laughs> just from sometimes uh, for 30 seconds, she'd just be throwing her all over the ring, holding her by her hair. And it was like, gosh, I mean, you just, wow. Even men were like, oh my goodness, look at this. And then she'd kick them in the stomach so hard uh, yeah. that you felt sorry for them. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, did she kick her that hard? And then she made women really look good man that she made wrestling look real and the audience cringe man just like they did when mr knoxville ran bob orton jr's face into the wall earlier in the show there was absolutely nothing ladylike about the fabulous move wow <laughs> so the second interview was uh, different than usual as well tony charles and his opponent for the thanksgiving night pat barrett uh, came to the set together and they shared the set with Mula, and she started off. The first thing she did is she challenged both of them. She said, "I beat you guys." But <laughs> 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 after the way she had beat up May West, I mean, they, they probably said, "Hey, you might do it." Yeah, right? probably so, no, no takers on that. <laughs> no, no, man, they didn't jump to say, "Hey, we'll show you" or whatever. So. You know, and it was kind of a joke in a way, but when you when you looked at their reaction, you could see that they were thinking same thing I was because I was watching this show on TV. I wasn't there. I couldn't. I'd been banned from Southeastern. I wasn't there, so I was watching on TV. And I looked at their face, and I thought, "What? This is no joking matter to them, right?" So she left the set. And, uh, you know, she had her little say, but uh, Joyce Grable and what trouble she was in come Thursday night. And boy, she was. And they took a couple of funny shots at each other. You know, they kind of joked with each other about the upcoming match. But at, toward the end of the interview, they shook hands and they wished, wished each other luck on Thanksgiving night. And then they both had to admit when they started talking about, uh, you know, I wish you a lot of luck on Thanksgiving night. And they looked at each other and they said, and then they looked at Les and they said, well, what is Thanksgiving about? Because <laughs> they have no Thanksgiving in their countries. Right, right. So they don't even know what this big night's all about. But, you know, yeah. they said either way, they're going to they're gonna give fans a match. Uh, it was a great interview. 
God, after it was over, Moolah going over and the fans gained a lot of respect for both Charles and Barrett, man. And boy, they were really going to gain respect for these guys come that Thursday night because they are going to tear that Coliseum down. That is incredible. Okay. All right. Hey, I think we're in a good spot. Let's get a break in. And before we do, while we're going to break, remember, you've got time to find Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. You can subscribe, ring the bell to get reminders on when the greatest stories in wrestling will be dropped on YouTube. And make sure you tell your friends about Southeastern Rewind. All right. We'll continue with this studcast in a moment right here stay with us the stud appreciates all the support fans given the thousands and thousands of studcast listeners those that visit his stud store at tnstud.com and purchase souvenirs for family and friends those that have subscribed to his youtube channel southeastern rewind where he is daily compiling the southeastern continental and usa tv shows that are his creation from his successful wrestling companies. Those enjoying his stud stories on Southeastern Rewind and now his stud cast there as well. Without you, the fans, there would be no incentive for him to do what he does. If you wish, let others know about Southeastern Rewind on YouTube and encourage them to subscribe there and ring the bell. Tell others about his weekly studcast at tnstud.com and all the podcast outlets. And the stud would like to thank every one of you for your help and support. All right, welcome back into another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is David Summers. And stud, let's get right to it. I think maybe we were going to be talking about the personality profile. So who is on the personality profile on this particular TV show? Well, it's uh, it's another classic one, man. Uh, really, really good. Uh, Joe Duke uh, joins Les at the set. Uh, we're doing it live on this one. So they're in the Studio B, but they're only a short distance away from the studio crowd itself. It's kind of like they're all uh, sitting right together in a way. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, has pre-recorded some of his thoughts about this upcoming match uh, with the Mongolian Stomper. And uh, and uh, they're working uh, when uh, when they get to where we show that piece, uh, uh, they're going to show a Stomper in the background working that steel truck shock over, man, as usual, in the background. Got him a good sweat going. So uh, this profile, you know, uh, transported to fans months back, man. So Joe LaDuke had his first opportunity to watch both the blockbusting videos from the summer of 1977. And then he got the the, uh, the chance, the opportunity to watch his uh, – his blood oath, man, the chilling blood oath he did when he cut his arm with the axe. So these were the three, these were basically probably the three most famous moments in Southeastern history at this point. And uh, we were resurrecting the fantastic feud between two superstars on this profile. So the studio audience was deadly silent. So they watched pieces of these three captivating videos, which these blockbusting videos were absolutely that, man. Uh, and Joe was just magnificent, man, during this. Uh, as always, man, he was humble uh, constantly and thanking fans on uh, uh, occasion after occasion for their support, their continued support. Uh, he was describing what it was like to be in the hospital for, uh, for so long after his injury what it was like when Southeastern decided not to continue to give him a chance to get even with Gorgeous George Jr. and the Stomper. You know, how much 
He had been eager to get his hands on the stomper again for months and months, but Southeastern wouldn't let him do it. And uh, he talked about how hard it had been over the last four months waiting to get that shot at these two guys. So Gorgeous George Jr., uh, in his piece that was pre-recorded, was just as determined as LeDuc to continue the war between his monster and the man from Montreal, man. So uh, Ian and Stomper had been waiting for months, knowing that sooner or later Southeastern was going to allow the war to resume. And uh, it began, obviously, uh, Thanksgiving night, and that was just perfect night for it. So he and his Mongolian were thankful for the opportunity to, you know, and I think uh, Gigi said something about he and his Mongol were just uh, real, real happy to have the chance now to put the idiot lumberjack back in the hospital again, you know. So the fans reacted <laughs> to the interview uh, with, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of booze throughout what uh, what uh, Gigi had to say. So LeDuc finished by thanking God for allowing him to return to the sport he loved, for having brought him to this beautiful part of the world, meaning the Smoky Mountains and that, that area in the southeast, for having fans support for the first time in his career. Uh, you know, and that's because he was a heel everywhere he'd ever been. But for the first time in his wrestling career, the fans love him. And, uh, and he thanks Southeastern Wrestling for picking Thanksgiving night for this match because it made it that much more meaningful. He said he knew fans were going to pack that Coliseum and he was going to help them to continue their celebration by putting the Stomper in the same hospital he'd been in. So for the first time in the profile, the fans exploded for Joe at the end of it. He, they were kind of quiet, but well, at the end of it, they... They let him know how much they appreciated him. Mm-hmm. The stage basically was set for the return match uh, and uh, matches that had never been seen before. Uh, the matches between these two were like nothing ever seen before in this part of the country and probably any place else in the country as well. I hey, mean, Ron, they were just crazy matches. Hey, Ron, was this really his first time as as a baby face? Had, I mean, had he done this anywhere else before? Not that I'm aware of. So now, he, I don't know in Montreal if he was a a uh, babyface star. Yeah, but yeah. I do know that all the places he came in America, he was a heel. So and, he, uh, he's actually going to go down to the other southeastern uh, uh, in uh, 1979 and 80 mm-hmm. as a heel. Yeah, he won't go yeah. down there as a babyface. They'll never see him as a babyface. But he he probably was really enjoying this and feeding off the fans as as being the good guy for a change. So oh yeah, 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 man. Uh, you know he was absolutely loving it, and he didn't mind letting them know. And you could tell how much they loved him and how much he loved them. He spent a lot of time with the fans. He didn't go yeah. to these towns, yeah. smaller cities, uh, with these gyms and hide in the dressing room. He right, would right. be out there and just surrounded by people. They were just, uh, they loved him. And uh, he yeah. loved the fact they loved him. And even though there's great, a great distance and, and a, a, well, a, a big distance between Knoxville and Canada, wherever he was from, they were still the same people. These were his people. So that's awesome. That's really cool. That is a great personality profile, Ron. So I've got a feeling the Coliseum isn't going to be big enough so who was next? So uh, next match was uh, my brother Robert and Ricky Gibson 
and boy, they were wildly welcomed by the studio. <coughs> uh, and it uh, came immediately after the profile. There was no break after the profile. So right off of uh, Joe LaDuke sitting there and doing his thing and the fans cheering him, out come Rob and Ricky. And uh, so uh, Ron Wright, Don Carson, the assassin, they joined Les at the set. They went to the set while these boys were in the ring. And Ron Wright had plenty of time, man, to brag about how he had masterminded the plot to not only return to Southeastern himself, but to have his championship team be responsible for running both Bob Armstrong and the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller out of Southeastern and then did it in three weeks, three short weeks, ran two major guys out, you know, so – and uh, then he bragged about how they had changed everything in a short period of time and that he was going to soon be in charge and also be back with a special guest for the interview right after this match that was in the ring. And uh, they had a special surprise for Robert Fuller. So while all of that was going on at the set, their opponents uh, for Thanksgiving night, the Southeastern tag title match, uh, Robert Fuller and Ricky Gibson, they were making a statement of their own in the ring, man. Fans love these two young baby faces. They finished both opponents off together. Rob won with the fuller leg lock. Ricky Gibson drop kicked his guy from the top rope and covered him. And, uh, boy, that was a beautiful little shot in the instant replay. And then uh, Ron Wright and his men, they left the set. And Robert and Ricky went there after the match. And uh, remember last TV, Robert uh, had Ricky help him. Drop kicked a stomper in the back. Uh, he helped Rob to win the Southeastern TV Championship from the stomper. So these boys are getting pretty close at this point. Uh, so they watched in a short video from the night before where Robert had, sh had a shot at the Mongolian stomper Southeastern title, and Ricky was handcuffed last week, if you remember, in that stud's guest, to Gorgeous George Jr., and that uh, in last week's matches. And mm -hmm. at the end of that match, mm -hmm. Carson and the assassin, they get involved and uh, they jump on the handcuffed Ricky Gibson, who was handcuffed to gorgeous George Jr. And uh, that caused Rob to obviously have to leave the match, leave the ring in order to help Ricky. You're not going to let gorgeous George Jr., Don Carson, and the assassin all beat up your buddy when he's there to help you out. And uh, so Rob got counted out. While he's out there trying to help Ricky, he got counted out, and uh, Stomper got an easy win, and uh, Rob lost the match. Uh, but there were plenty of reasons for this tag match to be on the Thanksgiving night card. Uh, Les asked Robert if he knew what Ron Wright had in mind for him in the next interview, and uh, Rob had no idea, you know, so he's at the set. So uh, Ron Wright, Carson, and an assassin, and, uh, and an old enemy of Rob's, uh, from the past, you know, a kid named Larry Cheatham was in Studio B. So Wright started by introducing Larry Cheatham, and he introduced him, as was truthful, as a wrestler that he had personally trained, and that Robert Fuller had broken his leg, this young kid's leg, in his very first match, and that this man uh, was now well, and uh and uh, he said, uh, Ron Wright said, and I demand that Southeastern put Robert Fuller in the ring with him again, and they make it a hair versus hair match. 
right? So, uh, and he said, I want it to be the first match on the Thanksgiving card. What a great way to start the night off, he says. Ron Rice talking, and he said, he claimed that, you know, well, there's Robert Fuller. He's lost all that beautiful curly hair, you know, and he said, before the match even starts for the championship, he's going to be so down when he's up there and he's bald-headed and his head shaved that he ain't going to be able to wrestle and help Ricky Gibson and beat my team. So Robert and Ricky uh, was less, you know, less with the set. And uh, they were shocked by this challenge. They weren't expecting this. And Robert asked Les if he knew anything about this. And Les said no. And he didn't think anybody at Southeastern did either. You know, so, so he's like, I, this is a surprise to me, you know, uh, what do you want to do here, right? He's made the challenge. So, uh, you know, Rob said, you know, I think it's probably Ron Wright's plan to take uh, my focus and uh, Ricky's focus away from the tag championship match and, uh, and that, uh, you know, he wasn't going to let him get away with it. He said, I'm going to be glad to start the Thanksgiving card off for the fans. Uh, by seeing me whip one of Ron Wright's trainees and then get his head shaved right there in the middle of the ring. So studio popped, man. They loved the idea. So Rob told Les to tell the Southeastern officials to add that hair versus hair match for the opening of the card and that he'd gladly accept that challenge. <laughs> so then the last match uh, on the last TV show during November, uh, the rating period was all over. This is the last one in November uh, was going to be Joe LaDuke. And he was so over after that earlier personality profile. It didn't make any difference who his opponent was the next Thursday. He, he finished this guy, whoever he was, uh, with a bear hug, man. And uh, gosh, Joe LaDuke, uh, wow. When he wrapped his arms around you and clenched those hands, he, he uh, that was a horrible, horrible place to be was in Joe LaDuke's bear hug. So Joe went to the set for the last interview. Gorgeous George Jr. and the Stomper went into Studio B. And it made no difference that their match wasn't even for the Southeastern title. No belt at stake. They're just wrestling each other for the first time in four months. And just to see these two go at it head to head again almost after almost four months was enough to get the fans really excited about the prospects of this match. <laughs> so by the time their interviews was done, uh, fans were wishing it was Wednesday night, the night before Thanksgiving. They were they were ready. And all that was left was to find out what was going to happen five days later, man. <laughs> so, th I mean, there you go. That's another great TV. I can't wait to hear the numbers because I know you've got Arbitron Nielsen ratings book. That's coming in within a couple of months, I assume. So what happened on Thanksgiving night, the first one ever in the Coliseum, what was it like? Well, you know, I, I'd already kind of explained what it's like to watch them all come in and to fill that building up and to hear that first bell ring and all that excitement. And uh, then it, it just uh, kind of went right straight on from there because that hair versus hair match that got added to the card ended up right there in the first match. So Ron Wright uh, brought out his man, Larry Cheatham, to the ring. And I really like the, the guy's last name when you think about it. It's perfect for Ron Wright. 
Yeah. His name, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Ron Wright, if that kid would, if that was his real name, I doubt it. I got a feeling yeah. Ron Wright said, We're going to call you Cheatham. Yeah, yeah. So if Because we're going to cheat him. Yeah, if it fits, it fits. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so he brought Larry Cheatham to the ring. And then he got the microphone and he made a real long speech about what Rob had done and how much his trainee had improved after Rob had broken his leg and his leg had healed and he's training him every day. He went on and on and on. And then he invited up the lady barber who was going to cut the hair and shave the head. You know, he brought, invited her to get in the ring and he introduced her and he patted her on the back and all you can imagine all the booing that's going on during all of this, man. So, uh, <laughs> and his man, you know, he got his man all fired up after the barber left the ring, man. And, you know, come on. And that boy's jumping up and down. And boy, I mean, he's really ready to go. And then, uh, and then <laughs> Ron Wright jumps out on the floor and they ring the bell. And Rob had his back turned in the corner. He was <laughs> probably mm -hmm. taking his jacket off. Huh. And, uh, Wright's trainee, Cheatham, man, he charged old Rob. And Rob just stepped aside and shoved him into the turnbuckles. He kind of rolled him, and he got the three count in five seconds. <laughs> wow. His man had been beat in five seconds. Wow. The Coliseum exploded. <laughs> wow, the roof came off. The, the, the first match, five seconds yeah. in, and they had the first explosion of the night. And uh, so they set that boy down in the ring and she cut off his hair and then she shaved his head. And uh, and then Ron Wright had to stand there and he screamed at everybody in the building for laughing at his man while this was going on. I mean, it, it was Ron Wright's probably a 15 minute segment by the time they shaved the dude's head. But, uh, you know, it wasn't a great moment for Ron Wright. And it was even worse for his man named Cheatham. I love the build-up because the build-up was really cool, and then it's over, boom, just like that. So I think the crowd was kind of getting a kick out of that also. That is a great way to open a big card. I would I would have loved to, to hear Ron Wright's tirade after that loss that quickly, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, good stuff, man. So uh, uh, second match, uh, uh, Roy Lee Welch and uh, Princess Little Dove, they gave this already excited crowd, man, a few more laughs as they defeated the pro and Diamond Lilt. Uh, in these mixed matches like this, there were lots of little spots in which the midgets did some things, and uh, then they utilized their partner to do some things. Uh, wow, they had great stuff. And, uh, you know, all the kids were there and uh, everybody. It was really a great uh, part of wrestling. It's sadly missed in today's <laughs> sport. You know, I mean, uh, these yeah. these moments are truly gone forever. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the night basically after this second match was off to a tremendous start. Yeah. The next match. Wow. It did. It, it, it brought everyone uh, back to the name on the marquee out front, man. Wrestling, uh, not just wrestling, but beautiful wrestling and all these throws from Europe and uh, Tony Charles and Irish Pat Barrett. They gave fans one of the greatest wrestling matches ever seen in Southeastern. Um, I got a chance to see it myself. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. And it, it ended in a 30-minute time limit draw. Uh, 
And with everybody in the building on their feet, and they shook each other's hands at the end of it. Wow. I watched it from behind the big curtain at the back of the Coliseum. I got those chill bumps, man. It's like, gee, this is unbelievable stuff. And to me, that kind of match had to be on every huge card in order to keep business growing. That was the type of matches that made wrestling work. And uh, if you didn't have them in your territory, you weren't going to be drawing what you should be drawing. So the next was the World's Ladies Championship mm-hmm. match. Fabulous Moolah was just that. Fabulous, man. <laughs> she and Joyce Grable uh, gave fans an all-new impression of the ladies' wrestling. Gave me a imp- new impression, too. I'd seen some men matches that wasn't as brutal as theirs was. <laughs> Wow, Moolah made a huge impression on me that <laughs> night, man. And uh, in the future, I, I, instead of having these double world championships uh, with the NWA world champion and the world junior champion, uh, I'm going to start bringing in her, and then we're going to have triple world championship cards in the future because Moolah is going to make her way onto a bunch of those. Wow. So Ron Wright got his heat back, man, after that opening match where his trainee, Cheatham, lost his hair uh, in the tag match that was next. And he stole basically the the victory for Carson and Assassin. He saved their belts. They were about to get beat. And he left poor Ricky Gibson laying, and he got in another chisel shot doing it. So he hadn't hadn't gotten away totally from his chisel, (laughs) but uh, it uh, it was being cut back. So, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, under the hood, uh, in this fight all over the building, crazy match, no disqualification, beat Bob Orton Jr. uh, in an absolutely wild, I mean, wild match of where falls count anywhere. It only had to have one fall, but you could do it anywhere in the building with this particular match. And they, at one point, ended up in the second balcony in the general admission seats. They fought their way two levels up into the Coliseum. And uh, the fans and me, uh, they'd never seen anything like that. I mean, I was like, wow. And at the end of the match, Bob Orton Jr. took a bump over the second balcony seats in the wall that dropped down under the uh, to the uh, ringside uh, level and landed on the concrete on his back, man. Ten feet, that'd be a ten-foot drop. And uh, Mr. Knoxville uh, jumped off the same, same wall uh, to the floor below and covered him to end the match. Wow, it was just so... Uh, and uh, I'd had to, to get this match and to make it happen. I had to uh, put together a special group of policemen that, that followed them basically all over the building to keep <laughs> the fans back from uh, getting too close, from a fan getting hurt or from somebody knifing them or somebody doing something. To wow. Them. And, uh, you know, because they were so close to the fans, uh, they, they laid their punches in, man, much harder than normal because they're right there and you want those people to go away going, wow, yeah, gee, yeah. that's unreal, you know? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, and it was one of those nights, man, where Ronnie Garvin got his nickname, you know, that's why they started calling him fist of stone and the one man gang because wow. he was racking that Bob Orton Jr. with those punches that were just, you could hear him. You could feel the thud. 
when he would hit him up in the top of the building. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow. I mean, uh, uh, made believers out of a lot of fans that night. God. The last match was what everybody came to see, obviously. A bloody match. It was out of control. It wasn't easily stopped even after the bell. Uh, and it was what these two guys, the Stomper and and uh, and Joe LaDuke did, you know. And uh, just as much as the Charles and Barrett match did for the wrestling fans, this match did for those that didn't, that wanted to see that violence. <laughs> There was a lot of them out there that wanted to see that kind of match. And uh, and there was no winner between either one of them. They stopped the match as usual, man. They tried to separate them. It was a, it was a big defeat to separate them. And, uh, and that was the case in, in many of their matches. The winners, you know who the winner was that night, man, in that match? The fans. What an incredible night. So how many did you pack in that evening? Well, it was another sellout. It was another turnaway crowd. It was 6,000 plus. It was, you know, 61, 70, you know, some, uh, you know, strange little number. I don't remember, but I know it was over 6,000 as there was the uh, all-time record, you know. And I know that uh, uh, according to the manager, the building manager, probably at least 3,000 people couldn't get in or turned away. Holy cow. So the Coliseum was just too small, man, at this point. Holy cow. I mean, how do you, how can you not have something to sell those 3,000 people that are walking away? God. Should have had a pay per view, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You know, and, and, and if I had to, if I had to, if I had been longer in the business, uh, this was a little bit before pay per views. Started happening. Well, I was going to say, did they even have closed captioning? I mean, I mean, uh, uh, closed circuit uh, uh, situations like that back then in the in nineteen seventy seven. So, uh, yeah, they they didn't have it. But you know what? This Coliseum was perfectly situated for it. The Coliseum, the big part, was on the right hand side of this building, yeah. and on the other end of this long <laughs> structure was a auditorium that held about three thousand people. Yeah. Wow. That you could have put the screen yeah. up on the stage and uh, you might have been able to put the 9,000 in that building that night. Man, that's incredible. I wish I had done it. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no. well, they were there. They were at least yeah. there. <laughs> Man, they just keep getting better, Rod. So, all right. So now we have a, a, a gr- great question for our learning tree today. Larry Bradshaw says, why was there such a long absence of matches between the Mongolian Stomper and Joe LaDuke? We talked about that earlier. What was that? What was the deal on that? Okay. Yeah, well, there was a reason for that, you know, and, and it was my idea. And then it was my plan from the very beginning when I had both of these guys in the territory. And, uh, and when we decided we couldn't have the Stomper be a heel and Joe LaDuke be a heel, and, uh, you know, it wasn't going to make sense. Both bald-headed, both mean-looking, both nasty dudes, you know, uh, that we needed to make a baby face out of Joe Duke. And uh, so my plan from the very beginning, I, I spent a lot of time and an effort to get away from the blood and gut style of wrestling that was in Knoxville when I came there in 1974. I did not want to have consistently that type of matches. So uh, 
my thoughts were, uh, how can I get away from it? So I wanted Southeastern wrestling basically to be a predominantly wrestling territory. If it became a territory, I wanted it to be based on mostly wrestling. Mm -hmm. And I know many fans before my arrival were brought up Oh, before I got there in the, into Knoxville and the East Tennessee, uh, fans were brought up on blood and guts matches, man. Ron Wright and Whitey Caldwell, chain type matches in which, God, the blood just was everywhere. Wow. And in my opinion, there was a time and place for those, but you didn't want to have them too often, man. So, so there was just as many, if not potential fans, that didn't want or need steady diet of that type of match. Those that didn't want it also didn't come to Chihuahua Park. And some of them, I think, back in those days was for that very reason, because they didn't want to see all that blood. And I wanted to make the sport work for all fans, not just for those that wanted to see the blood, for those that wanted to see the wrestling. Providing a little of everything, I thought, but not too much of anything was the great formula for professional wrestling. Give them something of everything, but don't give them too much of any of it. So I brought in great wrestlers in the beginning uh, when I got there, like the Dale Lewis and the Danny Hodge, the Nelson Royal, the Tony Charles, the Pat Barrett. I just kept bringing them and many others uh, for those fans that appreciated real wrestling. That uh, and I want, and because I appreciated it, it's what I wanted it to be. So it began to happen in the first couple of years, especially when we started moving into the Coliseum, that uh, fans began to change their attitude from that blood and guts era. And then along came Stomper and LaDuke. And, and they were only made for one kind of match. You couldn't put those guys together and expect them to go out there and give you a great wrestling match. Wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so uh, in 1977, once they're both there, uh, I got Stomper as a heel. He's over. I got Chola Duke. I'm going to make a baby face out of him. I finally threw them together in 1977. And week after week, man, for a short time there, wow, buildings weren't big enough, you know. And then along came the blockbusting angle, man. Wow, it just, it accentuated. Uh, I, but I needed to get away from all that violence and that blood for a little while. And I was, and I sad to say, Joel Duke's injury kind of provided me an easy way to get away from it. Uh, he needed time to get totally well after his hospital stay. And uh, Southeastern needed to get back to more wrestling during that time that he's off. And uh, so it wasn't by design or a plan to happen that way. Um, and I can't remember the gentleman that asked the question, uh, Mr. Bradshaw, I think it was. It wasn't by design or plan for it to happen the way it did, but it did happen. And for almost four months, they never wrestled anywhere in Southeastern against each other. And then suddenly, within three weeks, Bob Armstrong and myself got eliminated from Southeastern. Something big needed to happen. Uh, Joe DeLuke was finally well. The Stomper was still here and champion. And on Thanksgiving night in 1977, it seemed like the perfect time to bring back the violence. And boy, did they do it. Wow. And that's how you do it right there on the Studcast. All right, folks on Facebook, become friends with the Tennessee Stud on his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, or author Ron Fuller Welch page. Simply like and follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend. Follow him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. 
Also, get on board the hottest YouTube old school wrestling channel. It's called Southeastern Rewind. If you haven't checked it out, tell your friends, save them some time of messing around on YouTube when you're really looking for the old school. Subscribe today and enjoy great USA, Continental, and Southeastern TV shows from the 1980s in the order they were produced, plus current stud cast, historic stud stories, and a whole lot more. Go get your Christmas gifts from the stud store this year at tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. Great gifts that have real meaning for real wrestling fans. Autograph photos, T-shirts, Tennessee Stud mask, exactly like the ones that he wore back in the day. A great Continental DVD five-pack of DVDs. 62 matches, 12 hours of classic video action. Ron's brilliant Brutus novel, autographed, and much more. It's all at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store, and tnstud.com is open 24-7. Get your orders in so they can get it back to you in time for Christmas. All right, so where are we riding next week, Stud? Well, we're going to have another lesson, man, for wrestling fans. And next week's today's training, like we always do. Uh, we're hopefully going to teach them something else. And uh, we're entering, obviously, December of 1977 with another great card. Uh, one match in particular has Tony Charles and Pat Barrett, both of them great scientific wrestlers, in a very interesting Texas death match. So uh, Mr. Knoxville and Bob Orton Jr. are still at it. The Joe LaDuke and the Stomper are still fighting it out. Uh, Thunderbolt Patterson going to return to team with my brother. And there's a lot of other great stars on that card next week. Next week's learning tree question must have come from somebody who watched uh, Continental TV show number five on Southeastern Rewind uh, because he asked, what did you know about Adrian Street before you booked him in southeastern Pensacola? This was his United States debut. <laughs> Curious to find out who recommended him to you. Oh, uh, And that number five show was the United States and American debut of uh, Adrian Street. And, uh, you know, great question. Look forward to that one. All right, cool. All right, so no wonder the Studcasts just keep getting better. We have some great fans with great questions, lots of history to work with. All right, and listen, Ron, it's an honor to be a part of this, so thank you very much. It is just cool to hear it all go down. Well, man, you and your horse, Mr. Pickles, are a big part of, of the success, man. And, uh, <laughs> most of it is attributable, obviously, to our great fans, and uh, many of which support us uh, and have been since the very beginning and uh thanks to all of you out there listening and uh, all of those people that have supported us from the beginning and uh, please take care of yourselves and others and may god bless us all for ron fuller in the great smoky mountains i'm david summers saying thank you for listening find me at david summers productions at gmail.com this studcast is a david summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.